Welcome back to The The Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey, of course. And you're listening to our second episode of the Scaling Mentorship series where we interview successful leaders and founders and entrepreneurs uh, in front of a live audience almost every single time. So far it has been. uh, To tell you how they navigated their careers and how they lead differently. And we're really excited to share this interview that we had this week with Becky Frankowitz. We sat down with Becky in front of, I think it was probably at least 50 or 60 of her team at Manpower Group, which she is the president of North American Operations, the 30,000 person organization. So you can understand the massive scale at which Becky operates. I'll tell you, you can be the judge of the episode, but... Vadim, don't you think Becky sounded like super presidential? <laughs> like she did. She, she also looked presidential. She looks presidential. I would <laughs> I would vote for her. But she, yeah, her answers were super polished. But she also was very transparent, and she was a, a breath of fresh air to talk to. But Becky has such a cool story. She basically started off from from nothing, working her way up to running one of the biggest subsidiaries at PepsiCo, Quaker Foods. You, you must have heard of Quaker, two point six billion dollar subsidiary, uh, before coming to manpower group and there's just so many nuggets of lessons of how she was able to navigate her career to get to that really important position and we talk a lot about entrepreneurs on the show people that take risks people that uh, maybe quit their jobs or change careers and do something that's drastic like that in order to progress in their lives but we also want to feature stories of people that have built their career slowly over time because there's no one right way to do life <laughs> and there's no one right way to uh, attain sort of your own goals and to achieve whatever it is you're looking to accomplish there are plenty of people that build their career slowly over time that take advantage of opportunities as they come that take leadership roles or take on new sort of uncomfortable roles that they may not have done before, but maybe they believe that they can do. And if you look at so many of the CEOs of some of the biggest companies out there today, actually a lot of them are not founders. A lot of them are people that grew through the ranks, spent, you know, five years, 10 years working at a company, making a name for themselves and eventually taking over at the helm. And so we wanted to bring an interesting perspective of somebody that was able to not necessarily start companies, but take the leadership positions at very massive organizations by knowing how to navigate a career successfully. And what's so motivating about this story is, look, Becky didn't know how to be a leader her whole career. Maybe there was some innate things that she was born at that made her better at that, but she had to learn over time. She did sales for many years. She did marketing, finance, operations, all these different roles. And eventually when she got the opportunity to lead, she figured it out and she learned how to do it just like everything else in her life. So hopefully you guys can learn from her experience and figure out how to apply it to yourself to progress in your own endeavor, whatever it is you're trying to do. Please enjoy this conversation with Becky Frankovitz. Let's get started. Yeah. All right. We usually do a little intro, so now you know we're actually getting started. <laughs> okay. This is real. This is real now, all right? Cool. Welcome back to The, the Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs and leaders despite lack of experience, money, or connections. Becca, we usually start at the very beginning with most of our interviews, but today I actually want to start a little bit differently because we're in front of a live audience of a lot of your colleagues here. It's probably about 50 people in the room from Manpower Group. And obviously, everybody here has different roles, responsibilities, career trajectories, ambitions, so on and so forth. But what I wanted to start with is, obviously, as the uh, president here of Manpower Group North America, you are part of a company that is $21 billion company, 30,000 employees, 
public company on New York Stock Exchange. I think a stat that I heard is you guys place about three people every single minute through the efforts that you guys do. True. But as the president of this company, and in your role specifically, what would you say is something that might surprise people about your job and about what you do? Oh, about my job? Yeah. Um, I would say, I hope, actually, I hope this isn't surprising. It's super fun. <laughs> like, my job is fun. And yes, it's hard. And yes, the hours sometimes are long. And the travel, as of late, has been super tough, for the record. Um, but at the end of the day, it's fun. And the reason it's fun is similar to why you two do this when we were talking I get to meet so many neat people. I get to re-see people that I've met before and, and get to celebrate individual accomplishments that actually the core of what we do, we help people find work. And I've never been in a company where my personal purpose and the purpose of the enterprise is so aligned. So I believe, I believe in the heart of who I am and the value of work and the fact that we get to do that every day is a gift. That, that's awesome. And I think that, you know, you, you seem to me like someone that can find your passion and purpose behind any company that you get behind because you believe in the people. I'm sure that's why you joined Manpower Group two years ago. But what might some people not know about some of the day-to-day of, of your work? Because... You know, we know that you're a leader. We know that you make difficult decisions every single day. But for the folks sitting in this room, what might we not know about Becky that gets up in the morning, you know, goes for a run, gets to work? What does she do when she gets to work? Yeah, so my calendar is jammed, much like I'm sure many of yours. Um, I get a ton of emails. Um, I love it when people teams me. And so, you know, all of you can teams me. Like, that's why we have teams. So I think that's kind of fun during the middle of the day. But I would say that part of my job is pretty standard. The part that's surprising is when one of the people that works for you sends me an email. And I get to hear directly from the people whose lives we've changed. Or, honestly, one of the clients calls and says we've had a success or we haven't. We're having trouble. And so I love that we're a company. Now, some of you might be scared now saying, oh, my gosh, she's hearing about our issues. I hear about our issues. But I love that we're a company where that's okay. Because none of you have ever gotten a call from me saying, hey, this is a problem. Why didn't we handle this differently? You might get a call that says we've got a problem. We need to fix it. But it's never in judgment. It's always in, in how do we make ourselves better because that's what we exist to do. So that's probably the surprising thing is that we, I personally hear a lot from the people that we put to work as well, well as directly from our clients. Putting people to work is obviously super important. We, we need to be productive members of society. But let's back up a little bit into your story and how you got to work. Because we know from your background that you grew up uh, very hard working on a farm, a farmer's daughter, and you got into retail shortly after. And I think you, you found an inclination towards sales, which Vadim and I actually, we talk a lot about the, on this podcast. We think it's a very foundational skill that almost anyone, young or old, should learn at some point in their lives. But tell us a little bit about your decision-making process of, you know, you were telling us in the, right before we started this show that you really cared about your grades in college. <laughs> you were a diligent student. How did you decide to get into, um, your first job was in Procter & Gamble, uh, but how did you decide to get into that role and what drew you to that industry? Yeah, so first I'd say I was that kid that might have annoyed some of you in the front flapping my hand, you know, like, choose me, choose me, I have the answer. Um, I was that kid, only because I've always loved to learn. Like, I really have a thirst for learning. Learning Curiosity is a bit of my fuel. And so it's, it's not because I wanted to be in the front of the class. It's because I really loved the fact that when I learned something, I had the chance to share that. So that's important. Um, sales. So let me just pivot on that for a minute and say, and this team has heard me say it before, we are all salespeople. 
everyone. I don't care if you're a technical business development manager for us or if you're a recruiter or if you're running a branch or if you are in finance or legal for the organization. We are all salespeople. You're selling either something for our company or you're selling yourself and your capabilities every day. And so I, I get frustrated when people are like, mm, sales. I'm like, no, no, sales. <laughs> like sales is just the ability to articulate a passion about something in a way that you can drive value for someone else. And that to me is something that we should all be pretty proud of because you're at a minimum you're selling yourself every day. Um, in terms of how I, I chose this industry, honestly, part of my story that isn't well known is that my father worked in consumer goods for 48 years for Frito-Lay, 48 years. Hmm. And so I remember the phone ringing on a Saturday morning, and it would be a store that didn't get their delivery of Frito-Lay chips, or it would be you know somebody frustrated over something, and that no matter what time of day it was, my dad always took the call. And this is back before home offices when they're calling my house, like my family's phone, phone line. And the fact that he took the call and was never frustrated by it, like it was always just part of what his job was this idea of service um, I thought that was an intimacy and a relationship in work that would be pretty cool and motivating so that was one piece that that led me to this space the other piece that led me to consumer to be a consumer expert is that no matter how good the AI is or how good the models are you can never fully predict human behavior and that's super cool because what you have to learn in the fact that you can never fully predict human behavior is you have to accept that you're wrong and I learned early in my life that I'm okay being wrong and that there's good reason for that as long as you learn from it. And so I, I love this di the dynamism of consumer space and the changes that would come from that. And I also love this idea of adding value to something that was bigger to me than I learned that from my dad. Hmm. I think that's really important what you said. And we talked to a lot of CEOs and look, everybody has different personalities, both CEOs and leaders. And some people are simply not that comfortable with the idea that they have to sell other people every day. But if you do choose to put yourself in that position as a leader or a CEO, you do have to become okay with it to a certain degree. Because it is part of what you do, whether you sell, like you said, your employees, your team, your partners, your investors, so on and so forth. And every day we are thinking about our careers, where we can progress. And when you're in an interview, you're also selling yourself, just like you said. And so that skill is foundational. We actually also worked in retail sales in the beginning of our careers. We worked with our father, who was an entrepreneur as well. So I think that's something that really shapes you. But I want to talk about at your role at Procter & Gamble, you're out of college. It's your first job out of college, right? Yes. You were there about seven years. And you were doing field sales, right? Can we talk about a specific story? Because, I mean, I'll tell you one quick specific story. When I was doing cold call sales, it was my second job out of college. I quit finance to get into tech, and I, I got into sales. Similar thinking is get some experience in sales because that's going to be valuable for all the roles in the future. But I remember doing the 75 cold calls a day. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're, you reach, let's say I sold to a lot of attorneys. And so you reach an attorney, and those guys, I mean, they get straight to the point. And you're on the phone, and you're flustered. Uh, just like anybody would be. You get a little anxiety. I don't care how good you are at sales. I mean, sometimes you get anxious depending on who's on the other line. And I remember at some points I had to run out, go to the bathroom, and just stand there in the stall and just give it like a few minutes so I can go back and do the work because I was so well anxious. So I guess I have anxiety problems. But, <laughs> but that's okay. A lot of us do it at any given moment. And so can you think back to maybe a moment when you were doing the field sales? I mean, for seven years, there had to be some maybe difficult moment where you came to somebody and they were upset or you had to convince them and kind of get past that mental uh, barrier that you have. Or maybe you didn't in that moment and you walked away and had to take a few minutes like I did in the stall. Yeah, so I would never be standing in a stall, but that's another story. <laughs> um, 
it's an <laughs> obvious difference in the two of us. Um, but what I would say is, well, first let me set context. So I came out of undergrad and was assigned 60 Albertson stores. So whatever your local grocery store, Kroger, et cetera, think about that. And I went door to door and store to store. So I had my little company car and I drove to one store and you had quotas you had to meet on the number of stores you visited a day. And, you know, I was talking to not the store manager because I was not at that level. I was talking to the department manager and talk about people with no time. I mean, the last thing they want to see is another rep coming through the door. And so first thing I had to learn is I had to have value quickly in the conversation or they were done with me. Likeability was not going to get me the the sale because I wouldn't have the time to even be likable. And so that was a critical learning. Um, But one of my funniest stories, so right out of college, I lived with my parents. So, you know, I was not a millennial. I'm not a millennial, but it was still cool to live with your parents to save money. So I'm living with my family. And remember, we have one phone line in the, in the house. And one of the, the managers, the department managers, was furious with me, called and left a foul-mouthed message on my parents' answering machine <laughs> about how mad that they were with me for something that I did when it happened to be a lady in this case, but she was off. And I came in and still placed an order. And boy, she was not happy. But my mom and dad listened to that message, and I'm new out of college and trying to make a career and, you know, stand on my own while living at home. And I was so embarrassed. And my dad, remember, 48 years in sales, so he's like, okay, did I teach you nothing? Like, what in the world did you not learn from me? Um, But you know what I did? Because I was scared of her now because she was really super mean. Um, But I forced myself out of my schedule because it's a schedule of who you visit. I went back to her the next day. And I didn't want to, and I was scared. And so that's my equivalent to taking a few minutes. But I walked in, and the first thing I said was, I'm sorry, because I exist to add value to you. And, and I didn't. I failed in adding value, and I will never do that again. So let me, let me explain what I was trying to achieve. And, but I led with I'm sorry, because I was. I, I, did, I only did it with purest of intentions, and yet that came across in a different way. And so, um, but I learned that I'm sorry are not bad words to say when you're wrong, and I was wrong. In her view, I had done something wrong. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, I think some of us are on the spectrum. Some people say I'm sorry too much and others don't say it enough. I actually think that owning up to your mistakes, whether it's at work to your boss or in this sales situation, is actually better because you you gain trust in that situation. But what is that balance? How do you know how to strike that balance of saying sorry the appropriate yeah so I'd I'd say it's easy for me if I'm wrong I'm sorry I mean like if I do something wrong I'll tell you I'm sorry I'll tell any of you I'm sorry and if I'm not I'm not going to say it I'll say actually that's not exactly how it went down this is what happened so in a different circumstance if she was wrong even young I was 22 years old at the time I would have gone even then and said that's inaccurate you know, because it's not you're wrong, because that's not a way to engage in a conversation. But the, the facts are inaccurate. And here's what actually happened. So I don't worry about too much or too little. It's more my own personal integrity. When I'm wrong, I'm sorry. And I'll say I'm wrong to my children. I'll say I'm wrong to my husband. I'll say I'm wrong to any of you. Um, but I will also let you know when I'm right. <laughs> As you should. But but that authenticity, I think, really comes out uh, with people, and then they can empathize, and typically you can get through the situation. I remember I was in line, actually, waiting to get into a bar a few weeks ago, and uh, there's like a bunch of people that come in front of us, and you know I got a little bit upset, because I've been waiting for a while, and uh, the, the woman that was standing in front of me, she noticed that I was upset. And she said, look, I'm really sorry. We're just here for a graduation thing, and uh, we, we, we can go in front of us. It's no big deal. And immediately that disarmed me. I mean, there was no way I was going to be upset at her for saying sorry. And so sometimes it's a great way to, to get out of that situation. But I'm curious now. So you were obviously at Pepsi for – or sorry, not at Pepsi. We're not there yet. We'll get there soon. <laughs> you were at Procter & Gamble for, for a while, and then you decided to go into consulting. 
Now, it's actually a pretty typical path for people to do consulting and or investment banking and then ultimately maybe get onto some kind of track to, to be a leader uh, within an organization or to be an executive. But for you, I don't know if you necessarily knew you wanted to be an executive. Did you at that point? No. So I'll say that that transition, so the path you're talking about, it's very normal for people to come out of undergrad, go into consulting, and then either go back to grad school or go into industry, as it's called. Less common to go from industry, where I worked full-time and went to school full-time to get my master's, to pivot into consulting, much less common, because there's a there's a belief that either you're an industry person or you're a consultant. And the truth I learned about myself is I'm both. Hmm. Like, I loved Procter & Gamble in my time there, and the only reason I left, so it was the first time in my career that I prioritized my personal life over my profession. First time ever. I was pregnant with my first daughter. We were living in Cincinnati. My mom said, hey, I'll retire. She had worked my whole life and keep your children in your house if you'll move back to Texas. And I had been in and out of Texas several times. So I went, Texas is home, for those of you who didn't know. (laughs) I don't live there still today, but it's still home. Um, But I I went into my boss and, and mentor at the time, and we'll talk about mentorship, I'm sure, and to both, they're separate people, and said, hey, here's my situation. And they said, no worries, we'll move you to Texas. Like, it's fine, they've moved me several times. But then my boss said... But all roads lead to Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And the permanence of that response, you know, I was young, newly married, pregnant. I was like, oh, that feels a little more permanent than I'm ready. Like all roads lead somewhere. It feels feels a little permanent. So I quit at a time when only 2% of people ever left Procter & Gamble. I mean, when the time when I joined, it was the consumer goods company to work for the sales and marketing um, powerhouse in the world, honestly. And so I left. And I can, I can see to this day sitting on my couch with my husband with my giant pregnant belly um, crying because I didn't know who I was if I wasn't a Procter & Gamble employee. So there was a bit of a redefinition of myself. And so I went into consulting. But the reason I went into consulting honestly wasn't the work. It turned out to be the work that I stayed. But I went because if I got on a plane in consulting, nobody cared where you lived. Because I was faced with the fact that my progression at that moment was dependent on my physical location. Now, I'm grateful a lot of that has changed since I've been in business. But at that time, that was the choice I was faced with, is what you, your career progression is dependent on where you live. And in consulting, nobody cared if you'd get on a plane. And so I started getting on planes. And then I fell in love with the fact that you know, the, there are levers of a P&L. So you said, did, did I know I wanted to be a leader? That's where I learned I wanted to run a business was consulting. Hmm. So P&G taught me this depth of consumer. And to really be an active listener, you, you can't, to identify unmet needs, it's not about you. It's about the person who has the need. And so I learned in, in, in P&G to listen actively in a way that didn't put my bias to the best that I could, didn't put my bias in a conversation. What I learned from consulting is I love the levers of a P&L. Like, I think it's cool to pull something and see what happens. And I learned that I'm okay not knowing. And that was probably the biggest gift consulting taught me is, you know, consulting's work where you you have some industry expertise, but basically they put you in the middle of a problem and charge a lot of money for you to figure it out. And, you know, you make a little of that. And I learned that I was really comfortable walking into a Fortune 500 company with a giant problem and not knowing the answer when I walked in the door. And 
that was exciting to learn about myself because I learned over time I'd figure it out and surround myself with people that could help me um, because I also knew I didn't know how to do all of it. And so it was a significant shift for me, but I honestly loved my time in consulting. And so I'm one of the weird people that love industry and consulting. Hmm. Really quickly, I want to touch on something that you you said, which is sometimes you have to make career choices based on personal choices. And you also talk about before that, not on this show, but another one, that work-life balance is a tricky thing and it's really just all life, life. I yeah. think that's how you yeah. said it, literally. Yeah. So yeah. I'm quoting you right now. Yeah. And and that was what you did at that time. Yeah. But I'm curious, though, because for a lot of people that might be in a sales role or a whatever role for a long time, how were you able to make that transition? And how, why do you think people trusted that you'd be able to come into a room with a Fortune 500 leader yeah. and make those decisions? I mean, because transitioning a career like that, even though you had sales experience, couldn't have been that easy. So what do you think gave you an edge and how'd you do it? Yeah, so I'd say, if I'm really honest with you, um, the name Procter & Gamble carried a lot of weight at the time. It's so the fact that I had that experience and I had done sales and marketing inside P&G gave me instant credibility. And so we shouldn't kid ourselves. The company that we keep does say something about us. And so that was a benefit that I had. But also that I think the executives, you know, we all get first impressions pretty quickly. And I think they got a first impression pretty quickly that she may not know, but she's going to work, what, she's going to outwork anybody to figure it out. And that was true. So one thing that I want to dive into a little bit more, and we, we touched on uh, mentorship as something that's, that's really important, but no one does anything alone. And I know that you personally care a lot about developing people in your organization, as large as it is. I'm sure that's, that's difficult to do, and maybe we can touch on even how you do that. But can you talk about some maybe one key mentoring moment in your life, not your whole life, but maybe the time that you had in consulting where it seems like you finally realized your abilities maybe in a little bit wider way than you had defined it before. You, before you had, you were thinking of yourself as Procter & Gamble sales. Um, and so it opened up your mind a little bit. Now, as you realized where you want your career to go, how did you find the people to actually advise and mentor you and get behind you? And what were maybe some of those moments that were pivotal in, in helping progress your career? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not as afraid or concerned about asking for perspective. Again, it goes back to that I learned I was kind of okay being wrong and I'm kind of okay not knowing, which means, but you still have to deliver. So you better find people that are willing to coach you and develop you. And so really early on, I would go up to somebody after a presentation and say, how do you, what do you think, how do you think I did? Um, now part of this is credited to my PNG training. So how PNG trains you is after every sales call, you as the person, so somebody would ride with you, your manager or whoever, and you would say, here are a couple of things I did well and something I could have done better. So you have to self-evaluate. And then the manager with you does the same. So they say, after you say, because you know it's a little bit of a test all the time, but afterwards they'd say, hey, here are a couple of things you did well, something you could do better. And so that got ingrained in me that it was okay to have things that you could do better. Because remember, I started at 22 years old. So I, I learned very early that it's okay to have things to do better. And so I sought out mentors, um, honestly, for things I wanted to get better at. And so I would find someone who is an excellent public speaker and say, would you evaluate me after this presentation and tell me what I did well? And frequently what I could do better was you slow down. I'm a fast talker and I get excited and I talk even faster. Um, But I, I was unafraid to ask. And as human beings, we're so collegial. There's no better compliment to someone than to say, hey, what do you think? What are your view on this about me? I mean, you're inviting someone in to evaluate you, which is a huge compliment to the person and also a huge vulnerability to you. And so I had several times specifically when I would be working on something that I wanted to improve that I would go find someone. So I had mentors for purpose. 
not just mentors in general. Later in my career, I had mentors in general, but early it was mentors for purpose. I wanted to learn more about, you know, the PL and how it predicts behavior. So I went to someone in finance and said, hey, would you mentor me around really understanding the levers of a PL? Um, so I have several examples of, of moments in time. And later in my career, um, I've been so fortunate with mentors who um, would speak truth to me. You know, there's a difference in mentor and mentorship and sponsorship. So we can we can talk about that too, if of interest. But a mentor's job is really to walk alongside you and give you feedback and give you candor. And I've been fortunate to enroll people in my life that were willing to do that for me. But there, it's a reciprocal relationship. You have to be willing to hear it. Because if you ask for it, and then you're closed on hearing it, you'll never get feedback again. How do you go from asking somebody to, let's say, help you or advise you on a specific issue like, hey, I'd like for you to tell me, teach me a little bit about the, the PNL and how that drives the business to that actually becoming a sustained mentorship relationship. Is it about follow-up? Is, what is it about? Yeah. So in my experience, how it works is mentorship has to be two ways. If it's not, it won't be sustained. In other words, if it's only about me getting better, the other person is not going to be interested for too long. And so the concept of it's a two-way street. Now, that that is what's made it sustainable. The relationships I've had where I could offer something and something could be offered to me are the ones that I've had you know, remain the longest. Otherwise, they've been points in time and with great giving spirits. Um, but the sustainability ones come from when I have something to contribute and someone else has something to give. What would you say then to the folks in this room? Because people, I'm sure, are at different levels in terms of how they can be a little bit more proactive. And really, to anybody listening, uh, if you're at a bigger company or really at a company anywhere more than 30, 50 people is already big enough, uh, how can you instill that idea that you, you should be mentoring more and how can they be more proactive about it? Actually? Yeah, so I... I actually have found that, again, human nature wants to help. We want to help by the nature of who we are. The issue is we don't ask. Like I, all of you know, I'll frequently say, hey, you know, email me or send me a Teams. I already did that today. About 10% of you will do it. So it's we don't take opportunity and we don't ask. And that's the biggest challenge, I think. And so if you're in any size company, it is a compliment to another person to ask them for their perspective on you. And I've never in my life, not one time, asked someone to be a mentor for me. And they've said, no, not one time. And, you know, I've tried to be specific because some people are like, I'm busy. I can't do that. No, no, this is how I define that. I'd love to have quarterly calls with you. I will do the work in terms of sending you the things that I want to talk about. Um, I'll make sure that I, if you have something that you want me to react to, I'd be happy to do that. You know, so offering the reciprocity. Um, but it, mentoring is a, it's a relationship with purpose. And so treat it like a, a business meeting with purpose, have an agenda, have what you want to talk about, and be specific. One of the things that we've heard you talk about is that you were never afraid when you saw an opportunity, let's say for a promotion or for a new job, to raise your hand and say, why not me? Can you tell us a specific example of when and how you were able to do that successfully? Yeah, so I started in PepsiCo. So after I left P&G, I went to consulting, I left consulting and went to PepsiCo, and there's a whole story there as well. But I was in the finance department working in strategy. So PepsiCo prides themselves on their brand marketers. Now remember, I had done marketing as well at, at P&G, but honestly, it didn't really count unless you had done it at PepsiCo. So I was in the finance organization leading strategy, and I wanted to move to marketing. You know, and, but I'm telling you, very, you know, like the best colleges with the best degrees is all that PepsiCo would hire in marketing. And so what I started doing is I found a mentor in marketing and said, I'd like to move to marketing. And so help me, 
you know, find ways to demonstrate my marketing capability in this context of PepsiCo's marketing. And so I was fortunate to do that. And then I started carving myself into projects that were outside of, and I loved my strategy time, by the way, but I wanted, I wanted to be a general manager. I learned by doing, so I wanted to move across the functions. Um, so I took on projects that had marketing components to them as part of my development because I asked. I asked. And then ultimately, the way I got into marketing is two people before me had failed on a very strategic initiative that the, that the president and CEO had for the business. And I raised my hand and said, I'll take it on. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, we've had everybody else try, so why not you? Um, so their why not me was a different tone. But, but that's I've been willing to take on the jobs that people have filled at before me because I want a shot. And sometimes you have to be willing to take that lateral move to get the experience you're seeking. Mm. Well, I really love that you said that because Sergey and I have been talking about this topic for the last few weeks. We were on a show this morning called The Jordan Harbinger Show, and we talked about just that, how to change your career. I'm pretty sure you didn't listen to it, but you made exactly the same points that we made, which is uh, twofold. You find the mentors within the company that can help you kind of guide the light and show you the way, and then you do the actual work. So within your roles, Hopefully, you can do at least an element of the job that you want to have in the future. And if not, maybe you can go to higher up or somebody laterally, like you said, and try to take on those responsibilities that way. So I think that's, that's, a, that's perfect what you said. I think is really relevant to everybody here and everybody listening. But I want to back up because you mentioned a story. Yes. And that's a story of you getting to Pepsi. Yes. Now, I'm not going to ruin the whole story, but I do know that it involves the CEO of Pepsi, yes. uh, Irene. What was her last yes. name? Irene Rosenfeld. She was yeah. the first female president and CEO of Frito-Lay. Wow. It's owned by PepsiCo. So, I mean, you essentially got a call from her and had a meeting, yeah. and I want you to tell us how that went, how you even got that opportunity, but then also how that kind of shaped your thinking and how you were going to recruit talent as well in the future, because I'm sure you do a lot of that. Yeah, so actually that, you know, it's crazy the experiences that change your life. This story changed my life, much like the decision to leave P&G for personal reasons. It's that same type of bigness in, in my life. So PepsiCo had offered me three jobs before that I had turned down for various reasons. I was pregnant once. Other times it wasn't going to work out. Um, so I assumed that the road between me and them was, you know, they had this great tracking system and I had giant X's around my name. So the third time I interviewed, it still wasn't what I thought was right. I was on deck for a partner in consulting, which at the time as a female was truly unprecedented. Um, there were probably 15 of us globally that had the opportunity to be female partners. And so my career was going very well, but I wasn't positive that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And the model requires a bit of a financial commitment, so I wasn't sure. So I cold called Pepsi, so back to sales skills, I cold called PepsiCo and I'm sure it was kind of crazy because I found one of their internal recruiters, which I didn't know existed. So now that we're in this business, y'all can all laugh at me about that. But I didn't know something like that actually existed. But somehow I found this guy and said, hey, I'm, I'm not sure there is anything. I'm not sure I even want to do anything. You know, so I was really super careful. And the next thing I know, Irene Rosenfeld's office called me and I was on an assignment in consulting. And I thought it was a joke because, I mean, come on, like, why in the world is she calling me? I was like a mid-level manager. And sure enough, it was Irene Rosenfeld and she went on to be the CEO of, of Kraft Mondelez. And so she's had an amazing career and is a remarkable leader. But the fact that she called me and wanted to see me 
I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. So I went in and spent an hour and a half in her office having a conversation. Now, Irene wouldn't mind me telling this story. She's maybe 5'2", but I wouldn't want to meet her in a dark alley because she's fierce. I mean, she could take me and most of you. Um, She's a tough lady, and she carried herself as a tough lady, so I was a little intimidated. But we're having this conversation. I can see the fire, which we're in Dallas, and I was thinking, why do you have the fire on? It's hot here all the time. Um, But it was kind of December. And she asked me a question that has changed changed my life she said what job do you want and she's the president and ceo of this company i'm a mid-level manager i've spent an hour and a half talking to her and her capstone question was what job do you want and instead of having a moment of panic because i didn't know their whole structure she you know she wanted to know what would get you to come here i answered in a different way i said i don't know your structure but let me tell you what i'm uniquely good at And I had never in my life articulated that. I had never honestly thought a lot about it. But I went on to articulate what I think my unique product benefit is in terms of consumer goods, like what makes me unique. And the next day, they offered me two, not one, two amazing jobs in whole different functions in the organization. And that's why I chose to join PepsiCo. And by the way, I joined in finance because consulting had taught me that the P&L predicts behavior. And so I specifically wanted to be in finance to learn the industry and learn the business because I knew from consulting, if I knew where money was made, I'd know how decisions are made. And that's why I joined finance. Wow, that sounds so deliberate. You know, one of the things we we talk about on our show for if you're preparing for important pitch meetings or sales meetings or a meeting with a leader like this is to actually think about what questions they might ask and practice answering them. Because when you're in a situation like this, not everybody can so confidently reply with a strong answer. So we do this still to this day is we practice the things that we want to say to people uh, if we know we're going to have an important situation. But what you handled so well there, and it speaks to your, your sales experience, is that you, you knew that you didn't have to answer her question in exactly the same way that she asked. You were transparent. Again, goes back to the transparency of the fact that I don't know the structure. But here's what I'm good at. And, that's, and then you gave her the information to be able to then make a decision about what job you should have, which is really cool, really cool. And so in your time at Pepsi, you, you continued leveling up and getting more and more leadership positions. What is it about you that made people recognize that you should be the one in some of these positions? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think I experienced that to the end of my time at PepsiCo, and so I'll talk about that. Um, I believe in, you know, I learned by doing, I shared that with you. So I do best when I'm just immersed and I'm okay not knowing. And so that fear of, oh my gosh, what if I fail, um, isn't it, I have it, don't get me wrong, but it's not debilitating to me because I have enough history with myself to know I'm going to find some smart people that help me navigate through this until I can figure it out. Um, But I would say consulting taught me how to get pull for myself. So how to generate, you know, consulting is all about billable hours. You have to get yourself billable, much like some folks in our business, you have to get yourself billable. But I learned how to get pull for myself. And so I would work my way into different functions. So an interesting part of this story about, you know, embracing the power that you have. I, when I first joined with PepsiCo, remember I was up for partner, big job, potential for lots of money, very unique opportunity. And I met with the head of uh, the VP of HR at the time, and her name's Becky, too, and I just saw her a couple weeks ago. Um, but I told her, I said, hey, Becky, I want to change functions. Like, I want to move across functions. I want to go from finance to marketing to sales to operations. And she said, oh, we don't do that here. 
And I didn't know her at the time. So you can imagine, I just made this huge decision and I'm now like, what have I done to myself? Like, this was really bad. But then she followed, so I followed up and said, I'm not asking you to make the way. I'm just asking you not to stand in the way. And to her credit, she said, we'll make that commitment. Now, what I know now, what I learned very soon after, is she had no right at all to make that commitment to me, <laughs> like literally none, because she had no, it's a giant company and nobody can make those kind of commitments. But she did it. And if she would have said anything else, I would have left and gone back probably and had a much different career path. And so it's about embracing your power, like take the ownership for what you have rights over and say it because I'm changed. My life has changed as, as a result of that. So it, um, But I've spent my whole life in terms of how you get pulled I know how to get pulled for myself, and that comes from taking the jobs often. I've taken so many jobs that people before me had been fired from, literally fired. And I don't take them because I think I'm better. I take them because, one, it's my way in. And I am an informed risk taker. Like, I'll do the homework to understand, is there potential for success? Not guarantee, but is there potential for success? And that's how I've built my career is taking those jobs that, honestly, nobody else wanted. Can you remember maybe a specific time where you did this? Because, like, you know, you see a position, for example, that's opening up, and you're getting into planning and strategy mode of how you're going to execute your way into getting that role. Who do you reach out to? How do you get people behind you? Because uh, big roles, important roles are going to be competitive. There's going to be people that stand in your way, even if they make that unqualified commitment. Yeah. So how to, tell us a story about how that happened. Just yeah, so I was um, I moved from Dallas to Chicago um, with PepsiCo to take on innovation and strategy lead for the Quaker food business before I got the chance to run the whole business. And when I was there, I had done a great job in that role, and it was time for my next rotation. And the Gatorade sales job was open. And at the time, now this isn't one of those that nobody wanted. This is like the job. I mean, it's Gatorade. Who doesn't want to work on Gatorade? Like you get to meet all the stars and there's big marketing budgets. Like it's the job. That job was open. And this other little job called the Costco sales lead was open. And I needed to do sales because I hadn't done my sales rotation at PepsiCo. Of course, I had experience before that. So I knew I needed to do sales. So back to mentoring. I called a gentleman who was a mentor for me at the time, and I said, John, here's what I'm faced with. And he gave me so such amazing advice because, come on, now I'm just saying, it was Gatorade. Let's all remember Gatorade. And then Costco, by the way, at the time, was a new customer team for PepsiCo, new probably six years, and had never made budget in the history of the team. Never. And so it was the job that people were afraid of taking. So I called John, and I said, here's the situation. And he said, he said Becky, there are five people that are as qualified as you for the Gatorade job. And only you are uniquely qualified for the Costco job. So take the job that you will get the credit or the blame for it succeeding or failing. Because Gatorade's already doing well. So you're going to walk into something doing well and try to keep it going well. And there's a lot of people that can do that job. But you're uniquely qualified for Costco because of my background in nutrition. Um, and that's the angle that you know Costco has in the market. And so I ended up taking the Costco job, which was the right decision. And let me tell you what happened then, because he, he was so smart in the guidance he gave me. I went into the client, because we had not been successful at PepsiCo. They did not like us, didn't feel like they needed us. I asked the client for a mentor, in the client. I said, listen, we will be, if I'm successful, it's only because I've made you more successful. I realize PepsiCo hasn't been successful here. Is there somebody that can help me navigate? I'm not asking for extra credit or I'm not asking for deals to come my way. But is there somebody that can mentor me from the Costco side? And Costco said yes. 
Like we had never asked before, so people thought I was crazy. They said yes, and by the way, her name is Nancy. We're Facebook friends to this day. And when I left, she said, you should write a book on how to call on Costco. And my response is, I was only good because you taught me how to be. And so the other funny thing about Costco is I went in at a certain level, so it was a promotion for me. Um, But within a month of being there, you know, Costco's very familial. I got to meet the CEO. And I walked into his office. His name's Craig Jelnick, and he said, Um, you're going to be our global head for Costco, because I was just U.S. He goes, you're going to be the global head for Costco. And I was like, oh, no, no, we have great people in all these countries that can service you. I'll connect you with the right people, no worries. And he said, you misunderstood me. We have 10 countries, and you're going to lead them all for PepsiCo. And I was like, oh, you might want to tell somebody else that besides me. So he did. He called my boss and said, she's going to be our global head. And so within a month of taking this crazy job that nobody else wanted, I had a mentor to help me and I was responsible for 10 countries and I got a promotion. And so it's a little bit around, you know, just embracing the opportunities as they come your way. That's great advice. You do have to embrace opportunities and oftentimes it might feel uncomfortable and you're certainly going to be out of your comfort zone and doing something like that. You don't know how to run 10 countries, but you're willing to take the plunge. And and I think that's a great segue into the final part of the story, of course, which is you ultimately coming to Manpower Group. But I want the focus of this last part of the story. I mean, of course, I want to hear how that happened, but also I want the focus to be around this. You're a female leader. And every single person faces adversity at some point. It's not easy for anybody. But obviously for women, and we advise a lot of women, for example, in entrepreneurial space. And one of the things a lot of them come to us with is dealing with investors. It's a male-dominated area, let's face it. And so there's a lot of uh, maneuvering that you have to do sometimes, unfortunately, uh, because it's this is life. And so what would you say then as you continue to be a leader through all those roles at Pepsi and then ultimately coming to the helm here as a president of North America, what would you say to all the other women that you work with in terms of how they can navigate some of these difficult situations. And maybe you can tell it from a specific story in your career, but uh, I think that'd be a great thing to end on because uh, it's relevant for a lot of us because all of us will face adversity at some point or another. Yeah, and I'd say I'm pleased to say it's no longer just a female conversation. Like men are increasingly spending time with your families and outside interests, and and so it's it's actually a, a, a more gender-neutral situation. Still, when I grew up, though, in business... It was at a time I worked for a couple of female leaders, as you heard. Um, I was told you can't have it all. Literally, unequivocally, in the front of a room like this, leaders would say to me, you cannot have it all. You're going to have to make sacrifices of your family for your work, which in part is true. But the tone of it was, it's going to be a constant sacrifice. There will not be balance. And I early on said, I reject that idea. I reject the idea that I cannot be a great wife, a great mother, and a great employee. I am practical enough to know I cannot do those all at the same time. However, I can be great at something one day and, you know, average it at the next day. And in the end, it it all averages out. And so the biggest career change I ever made was in my own mind. So I shifted my mindset that I could be successful at it all, no matter what anybody told me. And then I started observing what was happening around me. So a couple of you have heard this story, but I noticed that the men about 3.15 on Tuesday afternoon would leave. And they would say, oh, I'm going to coach Timmy or Susie's basketball game. And the ladies would be like, oh, you're such a good dad. And everybody's like, awesome. And then about 15 minutes later, the ladies start disappearing, and there's nothing said. They're saying nothing. And I'm single time, no kids. So I leaned over to one of my mentors, and I said, okay, this is weird. Like, where are all the women going? Like, is there something I should be doing? They're like, oh, no, they're going to, you know, coach their kids' teams or whatever. And I was like, 
why don't they talk about it? Like, what's going on? And so from that moment, because I was a young woman trying to figure out how this was all going to work, I decided I was going to live out loud. And until this day, from that day to this day, as I sit with you, I do not hide. I am a mother of three remarkable daughters. I look back, I have a freshman in college, and I can honestly say to you, I don't regret. I wasn't at everything. I wasn't. But you know what? She didn't really need me at everything. She'd have liked it, but she didn't need it. I was at the things that were most important to her. I don't have regrets, and I have not hidden what I've done. And I'm grateful to work in a company that you can be your full self and not have to hide. For me, it's children. For some people, it's pets. For some people, it's just because I want to train for a marathon, and i got to get my night run in because 10 miles at 430. Whatever it is. I'm so grateful we're increasingly working in a, in a country where you can do everything that you want to do and still be a great employee. So that's very personal to me. And specifically for all you ladies in the room, please don't hide your life. Don't hide the rest of your life from your work life because the younger ladies, they're watching you. I love that. And one of the things you said early on in the interview is even though you were always transparent and upfront and you knew how to admit when you were wrong, you would also let people know when you're right. Yeah. And I think that is an awesome thing to, to end on here today. So important for everyone in the room here to know that at times where it matters, you should assert yourself and know that Becky is a testament to the fact that nothing in this life happens by accident. Uh, we can pave our way forward. Thank you so much, Becky, for coming to the show. Thank you so much, audience, for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to find out when we release this episode, it should be next week. But if you open up iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever, type in The Mentors, you'll see a black and white picture of me and Sergey staring at each other. Uh, <laughs> and by next week, the most recent episode of The Becky Frankwitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.